Hello everyone, I'm Frank Garz with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Today's topic is mental models and first conclusion bias. And moderating the discussion is our own Lean Startup Company faculty member, Adam Burke. Our guest is executive business coach at Sequoia Group, Chris Coachella. And with that, I'll hand things off to Adam. All right, so we're talking here about mental models uh, and first conclusion bias specifically as they apply to lean startup. Um, before we get started, what, it, what is a mental model? How do, we, how do we define a mental model? Yeah, I mean, you can define mental models in a lot of different ways, but basically they're, they're, they're tricks or, or reminders uh, to help us make better decisions. And I, I sort of look at it like if I had a mental mental filing cabinet of uh, index cards, there would be little phrases that would remind me to think in a certain way uh, in in various in various situations. Uh, just reminders to to change our perspective, uh, to bring in more information, to bring in more evidence, to make better decisions, and reduce uncertainty. Which uh, you know, if you read the Lean Startup book and take a step back. It's, it's so much about reducing uncertainty. I was just going to say, it sound, sounds a lot like what, we're, what our audience is familiar with anyway. So yeah. it's a good start. So then what would that filing, if, say now we're, we're in this big uh, filing cabinet, maybe now it's a virtual reality filing cabinet. Or <laughs> right. uh, and we get to the, uh, the, the, F, the F file. What is first conclusion bias? We pull out the card. What is it? When is it useful? Um, how can we use it? Uh, we'll get into the details later on in the, in the session, but let's do an introduction. Uh, what is it? How is it useful? Yeah, sure. For, for the purpose of Lean Startup, first conclusion bias is, is in a way super useful. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it as, as a mental model because, you know, we often think of biases as negative, but they, they, they do have positive sides. And so, you know, as entrepreneurs, we come up with an idea uh, we do a little validation. Friends and family say, hey, that's great. Some customers say, you know, hey, that's great. Charge ahead. And then we, we, we settle in on that conclusion. It's our first conclusion. It's our first baby, so to speak. We're super excited about it. It's going to change the world, right? And we charge. Um, and we all know as entrepreneurs and part of the Lean Startup community that, you know, the first idea is, is, is not, the, not the final idea. But somehow we get wrapped up into this bias. It, it takes hold of us. And, uh, and, and so if we continue with that and don't interrupt it in some way with maybe some other mental models, um, it becomes a bit of a, a, bit of a blind spot. Uh, I think first conclusion bias in terms of like evolution and who, who we are, there's certain situations that are really time bound where making fast decisions is really important. And we're good at it in those environments. And, and even as an entrepreneur, that may be a really good decision at that moment. Hey, we have something, let's go forward. But again, how do we you know, use the loop, use build, measure, learn, or, or other aspects to interrupt that, that process so that we can inform ourselves better? You talked for a second there about, about the, our babies and entrepreneurs, I think will relate to that. Would you say, um, would you say that falling in love with the solution is one type of first conclusion bias or are they parallel or are they separate? Sorry, I put you on the spot here. Uh, no, 
No, I, 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 in my mind, as you say that, without further reflection, I'd say they're, they're one-to-one, um, you know, falling in love with that solution and, and uh, not checking it again is, is much, very much like a first conclusion bias or, or how I'm applying it here in the, in the lean startup world. Awesome. So speaking specifically now about the lean startup world, uh, Eric talks a lot about reducing uncertainty uh, you talk a bit about uh, the, the sage from Omaha, uh, Mr. Warren Buffett. Um, talk to me about lowering, lowering risk, lowering uncertainty, and, and lowering hurdles. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett. I'm, I'm a bit of a finance and, and market geek on the side. Um, but, you know, him and his partner are wonderful mental model users and creators. They make am- amazing decisions without a lot of complex analysis. And we're all very familiar with their results in life and, and business. Um, you know, he's, Warren Buffett has often said, I don't go around looking for seven foot hurdles to jump over, I go around looking for one foot hurdles. And whenever I'm working in environments where there's uncertainty, I, I actually have a printout. <laughs> don't have it here, I have a printout of a little you know, napkin drawing that I put together of someone trying to jump over a seven foot hurdle versus a one foot hurdle. And to remind me, right, it, this is my index card, to remind me that my job, our job as entrepreneurs, innovators, thinkers, is to bring that hurdle height down. Uh, now, he's obviously making decisions about existing businesses. Uh, and so they're, they're there at operating and, and it's a little more clear to look at them. Uh, and in innovation and invention, you know, you're actually redefining the future. And so that hurdle is only going to get so low at any given juncture in a build, measure, learn loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that's not an excuse to not try to lower it until it, it, your marginal gain on that, right, that it stops lowering. And then perhaps that's a time to, to leap and build something, uh, measure it and learn it. And then, and then go through that process again, facing a new high hurdle and then trying to bring it down. So I look at it maybe now that I'm thinking about it, a little bit less of a, of a high jump uh, where I'm literally picturing or, uh, or what's the cool one we use the pole vault, pole vault. Uh, less of a one shot hurdle, you know, and maybe more of a, what's that? The steeplechase, steeplechase. Yeah. Something. Series of hurdles. Good, good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about the difference between sort of lowering uncertainty and kind of just taking the easy way out you know is it is a mental model just just collecting low-hanging fruit or or is are we still able to kind of have this big disruption and these big ideas uh with low hurdles wow that's uh that's a tough question i i mean the way I, I would think about it is, is to step back and, and, and look at un, uncertainty is, is, is prevalent. And so if we're working with, you know, low hanging fruit or, or, or a big disruptive situation, regardless, you want to, you want to lower, uh, you know, lower the uncertainty, you want to lower the hurdle height. Uh, and ideally you'd want to take any given situation you're in if there's a package of uncertainty, uh, and some things are a lot more complex and harder than others, but if you could divide it down into smaller ones, 
uh, a smaller series of hurdles, it would be to your advantage to do that and then prioritize them. I know Eric in the book even goes through kind of a, a box, uh, you know, leap of faith prioritization chart of impact versus time. The more you could have multiple dots on that board rather than just putting them all together, you can focus on something that's a little more tangible mm-hmm. um, up to the point where, you know, you can't divide it further and then apply these principles, uh, lean startup principles to lowering the, the uncertainty about that given assumption or about that given piece of uncertainty or, or idea. So I, I completely agree with you about this, this idea, not just of lean startup, but adding some Kanban, some agile, some uh, other yeah. buzzwords and breaking things down into small elements. That's, I, I love doing that. I think it's important. Uh, talk to me about the relative height of, of those risky assumptions. Uh, and, and so if the risky assumptions are hurdles and are hurdles that we're trying to lower, talk to me about the difference between lowering the height and uncertainty of the individual assumptions versus lowering the height of the individual project versus the vision. Is there a hierarchy there? Can we use these mental models for all three scenarios? Um, how does that play out? Yeah. Um, you know, as you're, as you're saying that I'm, I'm thinking, you know, how do I, how do I get to a, a universal like way of doing this? And, I like that question, but it, it paralyzes me a little bit. And it, it kind of, in my mind, it's, it's a tad in, in conflict with the, the, the purpose and application of how I'm viewing mental models as being, being simple. If they get complicated, it becomes hard to use them. Mm-hmm. And we become overwhelmed, right? Uh, with the amount of uncertainty or, or thinking at the whole picture. And I think thinking big and acting small and thinking small and you know going back and forth is is great. So, um, you know, I look at mental models as as the ability to go and grab one of these index cards in a given moment and have a conversation, maybe with myself or maybe with others, and say, "Hey, I'm I'm faced with some some uncertainty here. I'm faced with some trouble." Uh, recognizing that and then applying it to to bring it down. Now I may say, hey, let's go two steps forward and try to do the same thing. Maybe it's the same thinking model, maybe not. Uh, if we're looking at the big picture, um, and you know, let's say we got the three founders in the room and we're, we're, we're looking at the whole picture of what the startup might be, what other tools could we use to just take that whole hurdle down a little bit uh, or maybe what tools could we use to break it up into just a couple that would give us a sense of, of uh, better decision making, more, more clear agreements about how to go forward. And, and you know, it's, it's, I look at it as, as also compounding, the idea of compounding. Yep. You know, a, a savings account compounds really well a little bit over lots of repeat, mm-hmm. you know, iterations. And... And that's where I think a lot of, lot of value is. That's where, you know, the idea of, you know, pivoting or steering and doing it in the shortest amount of time is, is really valuable. And by keeping your, your, your tools small and your questions smaller, you can do that faster. It seems like not a lot of progress, but, you know, you spiral in 
to what is ultimately the you know the best target um, in a much a much higher resolution way. Yeah, I think that's the I think that's the key to the whole thing: is compound interest, compound learning, and now I guess compounded small hurdle heights. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's compounded learning. It's just another metaphor, if you will, or mental model of way of visualizing it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, for me, and I've met a lot of people that the, the picture of it or the catchphrase, the Warren Buffett catchphrase helps me return to that. Mm -hmm. Rather than if I think in my head, I have to iterate, you know, it's, it's, it's complex enough that I lose sight of things, whereas these, you know, familiar phrases and, and mental models help get me back on the track better than the more complicated thinking of iterative processes and uh, recursion, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, it takes me somewhere else. <laughs> so talk about that for a second. You talk about simplicity and just something that you personally decide, like, oh, I'm getting away from these buzzwords. Are you replacing? A buzzword with a buzzword, you're saying, you know, um, it's, it's easier for me. Um, I don't have to think about iteration, but now we're thinking about mental models. Is it, is it, um, is it re are we replacing one simplicity with another? Is it personal for you? Help our, help our audience, <laughs> you know, get rid of the buzzwords and actually apply it because that's what we're going to get into in the second half uh, of this yeah, I mean, you know, buzzwords have two sides to them, right? They they become they they're simple and they're they're catchy and and you know I'm I'm not one to want to introduce a new one, and so my advice uh, to anyone and and to myself is is grab the ones that make sense to you, and and use them to build a culture within yourself within your team so that that toolbox and all its glory of screwdrivers and all the pieces is easy to reach into and grab something out that it's safe to do that that we all are using the norms and the language that make that make it work um and you know and and, and lowering hurdle height is just in my mind a, a tool um mental model and tool could be synonymous uh, I like sticking with uncertainty, you know, but, but again, it's, we need to adapt these things for our own purposes. You know, Eric doesn't lay out a specific recipe, right? And that's kind of the brilliance. He, he, he's laying out um, an approach, right? A, a philosophy of, of, of way of thinking. Um, and there's, there's, there's lots of different uh, tools that could be put into that, that big lean startup box to, to help ourselves be better entrepreneurs, have higher likely, likelihoods of success. Fantastic. So before we get into the solutions, um, you, you mentioned it a bit in, in the opening. Uh, entrepreneurs tend, tend to fall in love with their baby. They tend to have this, you know, first conclusion bias. It's, it's definitely a fact. There's uh, we don't have to test that. It's not an assumption. Um, talk to me a little bit again about when it, when it, why it exists in humans, you know, we don't have to get to, we'll save it for the scientists uh, and the anthropologists, but, but when was it useful? Is it useful? Is it useful for entrepreneurs still? Or are we just, are we trying to totally, um, get rid of 
get rid of this bias. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, and I'm not saying get rid of it at all. I think there there's a lot of advantage in the entrepreneurial world, and the scientists will talk about caveman days, and I'm, I'm sure they'll take me to task with my simplification of it, as you mentioned. Uh, I, you know, I think naturally we it, it helps us a lot. You know, when we meet someone on the street, we're really good at at measuring friendliness, safety, you know, things that could be. Uh, you know, survival related things, right? We know when someone's not quite right, but we can't come up with the words and give, you know, give an outline of why. And that, that's incredibly useful. Meeting with an investor, right? If we can't resonate with an investor who's dumping their money in, we got big problems coming down the road, <laughs> right? Likewise, co-founders. Um, and we're not always right, of course. And so, you know, those kinds of judgments uh, that are biases, they're internal machinery to us, whether it's time-based, uh, like, like maybe a first conclusion bias, have lots of advantages and, and we want to keep them, right? We're, we're gonna make, we want to make decisions from gut because if it was all evident, you know, all perfectly evidence-based and you could walk out on a street corner and buy the manual, someone would have done it, yep. right? So there's clearly some aspect to that. Um, the, the danger, I guess, and it's, you know, or the blind spot to make it a little softer is that when you go forward with that and don't, and, and think it's all right. And we're very good at convincing ourselves it's all right, both logically convincing ourselves, but just also internally our machinery is like, you know, you got it, man. Go forward. This person's dangerous. Run away. Don't stop running, <laughs> right? They're still there. And so... When that happens in a situation where you don't know inf the information very well, you're going to head off in one direction, right? And in the beginning, you're going to look really, you know, look like where you started from. But as you go away, I should go that way. But if you're off by a couple degrees, that distance that you have to course correct becomes very large and expensive. Mm -hmm. And... And that's lifetime and, and money in there. And so if there, if we could grab a tool, any tool, really, grab it, pick it up, and close that and head back towards some ideal trajectory, uh, it's, I think, our, our responsibility to do that for ourselves, for our employees, for our investors, you know, for the, for the world at large, and also, you know, Tell those stories of, of learning. How, how, did, how did you get there? How did you course correct? I mean, this is very, very popular in the lean startup community. What were your mistakes? When did you find them? Uh, and how did you find them? And so that's kind of what we're talking about is those tools, um, you know, mental models that we can put into this iterative cycle of build, measure, learn that help us build, measure, and learn, you know, better. All right. So we are going to... Talk about solutions because everybody loves solutions. Especially. Oh yeah, they're so fun, aren't they? <laughs> so for this for this episode, we have three critical mental models. Uh, can you walk us? Can you introduce uh, all three of them for us? Yeah, the three that I've identified as as uh, mental models or habits of way of um, uh, you know of, of interrupting the first conclusion bias or this you know this obsession over the solution. Uh, the, the first one is culture. So how can you bring uh, questions or processes into your culture 
whether it's the daily huddles, whether it's water cooler talk, such that it becomes a habit and, and, a, and a happy habit, right? That it's not, it's not work, it's just something we do as a matter of course. And we ask these questions like, let's say, how do you know? How do you know that, right? Someone makes a declaration. Can we safely as a team say, how do we know that? Can everyone take that interpersonal risk? Or could, could you make it a game? You know, could you have a, a staff or something that said, you know, I'm the bias buster today and I, I'm going to grab that from you and, and we're, this is going to be fun and safe and, you know, we're going to pop all these assumption bubbles or identify them or shine a light on them, whatever, whatever that might be so that everyone from the top all the way down to the bottom and sideways has the power, the safety to, to bring that up because people are thinking, right? And it, it doesn't take rocket science. It doesn't take incredible engineering or whatever to identify the, the, the hiccups in thinking. And if our goal as a team and a group is to lower that uncertainty, we want everyone to talk. We don't want to penalize people for saying, hey, I think, you know, that's pretty and everything, but I, I, I think we're not truly meeting the customer's need and this is why. And if people get upset at that, you know, it's not a good environment for lowering that, that hurdle height. So I think infusing it into the culture is, is a huge one. And I, I couldn't agree more. And you talked about, you know, from the top to the bottom, I think it is easy, you know, for people at, at the top and we throw that, that hippo term or HIPAA, the highest paid person around. Um, how do we make it easier for, for regular people to challenge, you know, the people at the top and say, how do you know? I, I think, I agree. I think that's one of the most important questions we can ask. Uh, do you have any examples? Do you have any tips on, on how, you know, yep, sure. and people interfacing with customers can say, how do you know? Yeah, I think you, I'm glad you brought up that, you know, the people at the top, the, the highest paid person, I think it, it needs to start with a leader. It needs mm -hmm. to start with the person that, you know, potentially has the most power or, or has the most influence. And, and that could be a founder or it could be a leader that comes in later. Um, and it, it really starts with them. It starts with them setting the table. Um, some, some, you know, habits that they could bring, uh, bring to that are uh, telling stories about their mistakes, mm -hmm. telling stories about situations where this didn't go well, and we're trying to build a culture and a habit top to bottom of, of doing this better and then acting on that behavior. So in meetings, in, in company speeches or whatever, what is the tone? What are the stories that we, that we pull out? Who do we highlight as champions? Uh, can we highlight a champion that did something like this, that went to their manager and said, hey, I think we're, we're kind of off the path and it wasn't easy to do and i want to highlight them as a hero today and and this is what it meant for us it saved us six months of of engineering because you know we we were able to course correct sooner uh and and it's cultural so it's hard for me to say you should do it this way because that's wrong right you should do it the way it works for you <laughs> that's actually a perfect segue i don't know 
I was, I don't know if we can do the, the comments section, but I was just going to say for those listening, if you can share your ideas of how you mentioned before, make it fun. So I specifically think this is a call to, to action and sharing ways people have made it fun. Um, sometimes I feel like, you know, even myself, when I ask for evidence and ask, how do you know, it's like the kid in, kid in uh, third grade who asked for more homework uh, over the weekend or over the holidays uh, when the teacher forgot to assign something. So I, I do think, I, I completely agree that it's cultural. I completely agree that it starts with the right examples. Um, and I completely agree that it needs to be fun and not just annoying to ask for evidence, but I think this is a great opportunity to ask um, our, our audience for examples of how they've made it fun, how they started, uh, either led by example or had a, a great example at their, at their organization. Yeah, it is, because there's so many di different, different ways to do this. It's very contextually you know, specific. I, I think putting them in daily huddles is, is fantastic because there's only, there's only a minute, right? <laughs> I only have a minute. And if somehow we can, you know, pass a hat, a goofy hat and say, what, you know, what was your biggest lesson last week and make, make articulating our lessons fun. Um, you know, I think that's, you know, that, that, that's a great way to do it. And, and it doesn't take much time. And, and so therefore it doesn't seem like a lot of work either. And I was going to save this for the end, but now that we're talking about highest paid <laughs> people and, and uh, top down and bottom up, uh, does, does first conclusion bias affect, affect some people more than others? Wow. Um, well, I think, I think it affects the ones that have the conclusion the most. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, all, we, all, we all love and hold on to our conclusions. I mean, I've, I've witnessed myself just in a given meeting come in with a conclusion, man, I, even on a small thing, right? Mm -hmm. Even on a really small, insignificant thing, and I don't want to give it up. And I got to laugh at myself because I got to have a little fun doing it. Just being like, wow, why am I so, why do I wrap my arms so tight around it? Uh, but it, it closes people well, off. I'll interrupt you there for, uh, now we can really get inside your head. Yeah. Did you, did you close your eyes and reach into the file cabinet or what did you, how'd you, how'd you literally stop yourself? I think these real stories can. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good one. So I don't know if you're familiar with the book multipliers. Um, but in multipliers, they talk about the opposite of a multiplier quite a bit, which are diminishers. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've taken the assessment because I'm like, it's quite likely I have some diminishing attributes, what they call accidental diminisher attributes, right? Mm -hmm. Often our strengths, but because they're so strong, they, they crowd other people and things out. Mm -hmm. and, and to a degree, this, this, this is one of them, right? I, I have lots of ideas. I, I move fast. I talk fast. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm tall, you can't see that here. And, and that, that, is, that can create sort of not such a safe place for other people to, you know, to have an even playing field, which is very much what I want, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I really do want that, but my natural tendencies tend to, tend to do that. So I guess in this situation, I, I have a card <laughs> in my head that says accidental diminisher on it, okay. and boom. Okay, I know that I do these things. Can I go to the balcony? Again, another, another card, right? Can I go to the balcony of my own play happening in this meeting and observe myself, assess myself and course correct? Mm -hmm. um, and so that sequence of little 
you know, little cards brings me back, back to the center if I'm doing a good job. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Talk to me. And this is a, this is an, an, an oldie, but a goodie, a, a standard of, of obsessing over the problem. Uh, I know we have some good content uh, here at Lean Startup Co. about obsessing over the problem. Yeah. Um, talk to me about obsessing over the problem as a solution. Yeah, and I, I still want to talk about it, despite the fact that, you know, we all talk about it a lot. And, and that's because I find that over time, the further out you get on delivering product version one, two, and so on, we continually lose sight of we lose more and more lose sight of it. We think we got this, right? And we all know that there's competitors back there watching us, right? Modeling after us, looking for the next little piece of disruption that we might have overlooked. And um, I believe also that it applies, you know, from the ideation phase, what is the customer problem that we're having all the way through to sales? You know, in selling a, a given customer, what is their problem? On out to, you know, post fulfillment. And how did the ultimate solution solve the customer's problem? What was their experience? And, and building that relationship forward, because as time goes on, even if it, they can't articulate what it might be missing today, that good friend and a customer in two years may be able to articulate uh, that new problem that's in our domain, but didn't occur two years ago. And so continually having that lens of saying, okay, we delivered a solution. Great. Party time. Thank you. Money transaction, right? It all went well. We're five stars, 10 on an NPS score. But hey, tell me what we could do better. Reshifting back to the problem. Celebrate the solution. It's success, right? It's super important. But back to the problem, hey, tell me more about what went well. Uh, you know, these, these kinds of ethnographic questions, however you go about doing them. Uh, we'll continue to, to allow a given business or a given solution to have a slightly higher edge. And is that also cultural? I mean, are we just the same way we're raising our hand and saying, how do you know? Or are we just saying... What problem are we solving? Is it cultural? Is it, how, how does it, I'm seeing the mental models here, you know, as the solution to X and we have culture and we have, um, we have probably all these things I agree with. I just want to make sure that we're, where do they all go? I mean, this file cabinet, I want to make sure that the closest to, I want to make sure that we're in the tool shed or that our tools are organized um, yeah. I can look at my garage, you know, and it's, it's a mess. So, uh, so, so a given culture might be the garage, right? How do all the tools get organized for a given business? Okay. It's, sort of, it's sort of the garage, right? It's like the big container, all the norms and stories that, that make us who we are. Okay. Uh, and, and, but we talked about culture as one thing, but it's, it's really a, quite a, quite a large thing. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, build, building, building habits to ask for, for evidence, you know, are, are, are smaller things inside that garage um, put into and evolving with a culture over time. And I think obsessing over the, over the problem is, is one of those. How do we as a culture continually return to an articulation or a, a questioning of, of what is the customer's problem? 
very easy to ask that question, answer it, never come back to it. Mm -hmm. And so is that stand-ups? Is it, is it embedded in the, the culture of, of sales and post-sale evaluation? Do we even have post-sale evaluation, right? And, and how does that go down? And what do we talk about when we're out playing foosball or when we're at a party? Do we, do we, do we articulate things like, wow, you know, I just heard about, you know, something about a, a, the problem. Um, and if we don't talk about it, then, you know, our culture isn't as, as focused on it as, as it might be. Not to make it work and work all the, you know, work while we're trying to have fun. But, you know, when it's part of your culture, it's, it's, it's part of everyday life. Um, you know, you're always going into the, into the garage to, to, to get something or do something. Fantastic. Uh, and... And no lean startup webinar would be complete without talking about build, measure, learn loops. So uh, take me home. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I don't. It, I want a nickel for every time I say build, measure, learn during the day. <laughs> I really do, because it is probably again, it's a mental model, right? It's it's on my index card, and uh, it's as simple as that. And I use it so so often because it's the learning cycle. Uh, for us and we can learn everywhere right we can learn from our customers we can I'm learning in this conversation and it's just such a wonderful simple uh, way of, of, of building something uh, testing it measuring it learning from it and and, and, and taking taking another leap um, I often think it, it could um, you know that, that reducing that uncertainty is very much about about learning and, and, and building can be expensive. And mm -hmm. so, you know, as you, as you lower that hurdle height, returning to something we talked about earlier, and it, stop, it doesn't go down anymore, right? You, you, you kind of, your learning is tailed off at that moment, not entirely in, in that one assumption or in that moment, then it's time to go build something. Mm -hmm. uh, spend the resources, perhaps time or money, or, or just the risk of committing to building something. Uh, built into that a, a measuring ability and then what did we learn and then now we're faced with an, a new hurdle right in your series of hurdles which i think is great so what did we learn and now we're faced with a new set of hurdles uh how how high is that hurdle given what we currently know how can we lower it and then how do we build measure and learn again um it's fantastic yeah and keep going back. I agree with you that it's, it's this compound learning. It's almost like it's, there's learning everywhere. As I, I, sometimes when I'm doing coaching, you like, there's, like you said, there's learning from this conversation. Um, I feel like a lot of times people think that the learning just comes at the end of this perfect experiment, but it's almost like there's learning everywhere <laughs> and yeah. being, you know, <laughs> training ourselves to accept, you know, this is going to sound corny, but it, being open to that learning and accepting it along each stage and not just waiting for yep. this gift wrapped learning at the end. Um, there's a slide recently, I think Hunter Walk talks about MVPs as a vertical slice. Um, so maybe we'll get an overlay of that here, but it's almost the same thing with learning. Like learning is not just delivered to us at the end. It's, it's sort of oh. slight build, learn, measure, learn, learn, learn. Like maybe, I don't know if we're allowed to reinvent the build, measure, learn curve on this call, but uh, yeah, I think the two of us can't, can't get enough of. of yeah. Learning. You know, it came up in a, a coaching session I had the other day about sales and 
and, and someone says, well, what am I going to learn in sales? And, and I thought, well, I get it. You're trying to sell a given solution. You don't want to unbuild a solution in the middle of a sales call, right? That yep. We need to change our lens a little bit. But when you understand someone, when you discover who they are and, and the nuances of their problems, you're learning, you're understanding. Mm -hmm. And if you want them to understand you, which is to say, buy your product, <laughs> right? Hear your pitch at the end of the day. They need to be understood first. They need to have clear in their mind the opportunity. You're not going to sell them anything if they don't know the opportunity themselves. And they may not, right? Because you're, you're entering their world. And so how do you learn what their world's like? How do you ask for permission to come into that world? And that's by way of learning. Yep. And then building out your approach, which is two degrees off of your typical sales script, but only two degrees, mm -hmm. you know, to, to give it to them and talk about how are they and we going to learn how to measure, right? I mean, it, it applies there too. Whereas some will think, well, that's an engineering concept or, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. And, and, and this, this is where, you know, sometimes there's confusion in, in the world, right? We, we, we want a, a clear card for me right? That delivers something at the end and I'm done. Like, like this present of learning and, and everything's malleable. You know, a screwdriver doesn't have to, you know, go to this specific screw. It can do lots of different screws and lots of different appliances, right? That's why it's a tool. That's why it has so much value. So I think when we talk about these things like build, measure, learn, or any mental model, we have to think it's not it's not a one and done. It's not a single purpose or a single role tool. Um, and that's where I think smashing them and melting them into the garage culture or the, you know, our culture of the garage that we live in is, is, is so important because everyone can, can draw from it. All right. So uh, we opened, opened with Warren Buffett. Uh, let's close with Mad-Eye Moody. All right. Yeah. So as we were uh, preparing for this, um, my, my family and my kids were big Harry Potter fans. And the, uh, we, we often as a family use the phrase from Mad-Eye Moody, uh, you know, when, when he's counseling Harry about, uh, you know, his approach to, to, you know, as a teenager, his approach to Voldemort. And he says, constant vigilance, you know, with his patch and scary face. And, and not to make it scary, but I think as entrepreneurs and, and just people in life, right, things change fast. Life changes, the world changes, and there is an aspect of, of constant vigilance. And like you said, it's not, it's not learning, a learning present that you get at the end of, you know, years of hard work and you pop it open and all the learning comes out and you stop. Mm -hmm. um, it, is, it is a constant process. And it, if you look at it the right way, it's, it's immensely rewarding and fun. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not toil, right? Learning and, and using that learning to, to make customers' lives better, our own lives better, our children's lives better, our relationships is, is immensely rewarding. It's what we get out of coaching, largely. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but, you know, constant vigilance. <laughs> well, I'm there. <laughs>